0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is New York Times columnist Thomas Edsel. Welcome, Mr. Edsel. Welcome, one and all. Uh, let us get rolling with what is happening with the voting rights on Capitol Hill. Um, I'm going to start with uh, Bill Galston this week. Um, Bill, there was a—the the, the Republicans filibustered an attempt to have a discussion about S-1— um, and uh, and so it it they it didn't happen, um, and Chuck Schumer has kept saying that failure is not an option. My question to you is, didn't it just fail?
1: You know, it, it remains to be seen whether success is an option. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, and uh, there are a lot of moving parts here, uh, Senator Manchin. Uh, managed to put together a compromise proposal that attracted some interest across across the aisle. I'm not sure what would have happened if Senator Schumer had tried to open discussion on the compromise proposal as as a freestanding piece. Uh, We may never know the answer to that question, or we may find out the answer in the fall. This actually raises a broader question. Uh, I think that I'm probably in favor of maintaining the filibuster on final passage of bills, you know, as a way of stabilizing the Republic. Uh, But I am quite sure that I am against a 60 vote threshold to allow issues to be discussed on the floor of the United States Senate. I happen to believe that discussing issues is A way of informing not only one's colleagues in the Senate, but also the American people, directly or indirectly. And I do not see why a minority should be allowed to prevent even the discussion of an important public issue
0: yeah linda i i found that really odd didn't you i mean to 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 filibuster even the discussion of an issue i mean far from being the world's greatest deliberative body uh this makes the senate into you know a, an obstructive body and nothing more right well and it's not only that i mean when you look at the filibuster traditionally the
2: filibuster is all about talking it's about talking a bill, a motion, uh, whatever, to death and uh, basically tying up the uh, the floor and tying up the time in, in uh, discussions, sometimes, you know, reading from Dr. Seuss, uh, etc. But um, this is exactly right. And I think that Bill has offered a really interesting uh, compromise. Um, now, if they would simply turn over the running of the Congress to Mm -hmm. us here on beg to differ. I think we could probably get a whole lot of things done, but I mean, I do think that uh, the problem with, um, with all of this is that we have gotten away from the traditional filibuster. I mean, I do think that there is some advantage in protecting minority rights. And whenever a party is in the majority, they seem to think that they will always be in the majority. And of course that isn't true. And so Having a mechanism so that you can protect the rights of minorities' uh, viewpoints, I think, is important. But the, again, the, the tradition of the filibuster was it was about talking. And I think one of the great mistakes that was made in terms of the filibuster is moving away from the talking filibuster. First of all, it doesn't have the same impact in the way the public views it. Uh, I think there's a, you know, when you when you suggest that there's been obstruction, it just simply looks like in, under the current system that there was a vote taken and it failed to meet the, the threshold. But if you have to actually get up and talk and talk ad nauseum without bathroom breaks or meal breaks, et cetera, um, I think that gives a much better sense of what's happening and the obstruction that's taking place. So I, I think it's time not necessarily to get rid of the filibuster, but to change the mechanism in which the filibuster can be used and the rules of the filibuster.
0: Damon, um, there are so many uh, straws in the wind in the last week, suggesting that a compromise is, is right there, hanging, just ready to be pulled off the branch like a ripe fruit. You know, you have Democrats um, dropping their opposition to voter ID, finally, uh, they're seeing the light on on that matter. You know, there was recently a poll that Bill Galston sent to all of us earlier this week. You know that. Uh, uh, the, the the support for voter ID is broad and deep and uh, it is characterizing majorities of Republicans Democrats and independents so it's crazy for for Democrats to want to die on that hill and they've recognized that um, Mansion proposed an alternative to s1 that included many of the things that Democrats say they wanted um, and yet, why did Schumer and the rest say they had to go forward with s one when there's this compromise that's right out there waiting?
3: Well, um, you you see it happen over and over now where uh, the the parties deploy this kind of very heightened hyperbolic rhetoric in order to placate uh, in order to placate and motivate the the most uh, informed and sort of extreme faction of the party in fact on the right the entire story of the rise of donald trump can be told in one in one idiom uh, as this kind of a story of Republicans using a kind of hyped-up, amplified rhetoric about the awfulness of Barack Obama, before him the awfulness of Bill Clinton, and eventually the grassroots begin to actually believe it, and then they demand that the party move ever further out on the extreme to enact uh, what the rhetoric was talking about. And on the left, it happens with with the progressive wing of the party. And I think what you've ended up with on this issue here, on the, the voting rights issue, is I, of course on January 6th, we saw some pretty scary stuff and very ominous possible future for the country uh, with the president rejecting the outcome of a free and fair election. But Democrats have elevated all kinds of other things that are sort of adjacent to that immediate problem uh, and turned all of them into make-or-break things for the survival of democracy in America. And once you do that rhetorically— Schumer and the rest of the party leadership is sort of in this position where they have to double, triple, quadruple down on everything and treat absolutely every moment as the make or break moment, even if they know very much deep down that it's going to be a break moment because they don't have the votes to pass something. So that is that is an unfortunate uh, development of our time, but it is it is the reality. Now, I, will, I won't really go off on it now because I think we're supposed to... To talk about the infrastructure business uh, in a little bit, but I do think the 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 deal that seems to be hatching over infrastructure is pointing the way forward. It's the first a first of the issues in which it seems as if the 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 um, the approach of having a bipartisan group of centrist senators from both parties hatching a deal. Getting the White House on board and then trying to get the uh, the as many people on the far left and the far right on board as possible to pass something could uh, be a, a kind of positive uh, a positive sign for the future on everything else, including a possible voting rights bill down the line.
0: Hmm, well, that's optimistic. Um, Thomas Edsel, uh, you and I have not met. Is it okay if I call you Tom, though? Um, okay, we're all on a first name basis on this podcast. Um, a few weeks ago, you wrote a wonderful column. All your columns are wonderful, I highly recommend them. Um, but it was called How Far Are Republicans Willing to Go? They're Already Gone where you addressed um, some, you know, the, what's happening at the state level and uh, some of the threats. And so I'm curious to hear whether you agree with me that um, as, as admirable as Manchin's compromise on uh, voting rights may be, um, it, it too, like S1, really um, misses the main issue and the main threat, which is uh, not so much vote casting, but vote counting. And this tendency on the part of Republicans at the state level uh, to attempt to take uh, election uh, administration and vote counting out of the hands of professionals and volunteers and put it into the hands of partisans, namely Republican legislators, uh, who might not then be willing to certify a result they don't like.
4: Uh, I think it's more than a problem. The the Republican Party has Shown itself to basically uh, uh, by large majorities to support the view that Trump won the election, that the election was fraudulent, when all the evidence points in the opposite direction. So they've taken a position that's kind of loony tunes. uh, But not only that, they now, at the state level, want to control the election process and give state legislatures in Republican states. The power to overturn elections, so you have a party that that has already rejected the premise of a fair election in the United States, that, or the belief in a fair election, now wanting to actually determine itself by itself who the winners are. I think, you in terms of going past the point of no return, uh, you're not negotiating with. Uh, people who accept the, the rules of the game as we have them. These are people who have gone farther out and uh, make compromise very difficult. Um, so uh, But I must say just in passing, I thought Bill's idea is, is a very interesting one and ought to be explored more and should be pushed. With senators like Mitt Romney, Ben Sasse, Susan Collins, and and the, the so-called moderates, because it's a uh, uh, they claim to want to be open and transparent, and, and the implication being that they would want to have full discussion at least, uh, but. But at any rate, I think it's it's very different. That the, the problem is that it's very difficult now to to negotiate with a Republican Party that is, that is driven in large part by a delusion, and uh, it's a uh, it's just not the way American po- politics has functioned uh, for its its existence all up until now, and we. we at any rate, that's an upset, I guess.
0: Uh, Bill, back to you just for for a minute. Um, at the risk of sounding like I'm tooting my own horn, I'm just going to ask you to respond to the proposal that I made in a column last week saying that the Democrats really should include reform of the Electoral Count Act in their election reforms. That would get at the problem of what the Republicans are doing at the state level. Um, whereas none of the reforms that they have proposed really would. I mean, you know, you can go on and on about, oh, isn't it awful that people won't be able to hand out water to those waiting in line to vote? Well, you know what? That's just not – the fate of the republic is not going to rise or fall on that. But if republican legislatures, you know, fail to certify an election uh, because they don't like the outcome and then send it to the congress, controlled by republicans – and the Republicans don't accept those electoral college votes in a swing state, that does affect the, the health of the Republic and the fate of the Republic. So if we reform the electoral count act, say, to require a super majority of the Congress to fail to accept, uh, the, uh, the properly designated votes of a state or something along those lines, you could at least begin to hit back at that issue.
1: Well, uh i agree with you on two points mona uh number one that what you've identified as the most important issue is indeed the most important issue and number two that the electoral count act i believe of 1887 which is by universal agreement miserably ambiguously right, texted, right. uh needs to be rewritten in its entirety having said that there's a third point uh that I think is going to turn out to be the critical one, and that is clarifying the line, the constitutional line between uh, the powers of the federal government and the powers of the states in regulating state elections, even state elections with national consequences. And I, it's by no means clear to me that the Congress of the United States has the constitutional authority to do what a lot of people are recommending uh, with regard to this question. I'm not sure that it doesn't, but I am quite sure that if Congress moves in that direction, that it will be tested in the Supreme Court.
0: Okay. Does anybody have any insight into this? Um, I've heard it speculated that Schumer, uh, Chuck Schumer, is, um, is not pursuing some common sense compromises because he fears a primary challenge from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Anybody, Damon, Linda, anybody want to bite at that one? Mm
3: Uh, it, it certainly would explain some things. I know nothing about it, though. I, I, I you know, uh, Schumer is not on my uh, short list of uh, juiciest behind-the-scenes sources. So uh, <laughs> he's not—he's not sending me text messages confessing this stuff to me. And if he did, I would never tell any of you. Um, <laughs> But uh, it could explain some things. I mean, he, he simply he he definitely seems to be leaning to the progressive uh, side these days, and it has been rumored that AOC might challenge him. I, I I find it somewhat hard to believe that she could actually win statewide against him. I mean, there's a there's a big upstate that is not uh, is not uh, the same as a very left leaning. Uh, Brooklyn and Bronx uh, house district. So that would surprise me, but uh, we'll see, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Let us turn now to um, an an issue roiling um, the GOP and even uh, certain local areas uh, near where I live, uh, like Loudoun County, Virginia. Um, There was a meeting, in the past few days of the school board in Loudoun County that had to be shut down uh, because fights broke out and uh, the, the people became unruly. It was a protest by parents of the curriculum and uh, some of the uh, actions of the school board um, that the parents said were imposing uh, critical race theory um, and also uh, transgender uh policies that they didn't approve of. Um so I will start with you Tom Edsel. Um there are some people who say this is all fake that the the Republicans are just ginning up this outrage over uh, critical race theory, and uh, it's just the plain old race card all over again, and there's nothing there. Uh, it's all just invented. What What's your view?
4: Well, uh, to some extent, that that view is correct, but it's it's getting a very strong response is the problem. And a lot of, as in Loudoun County, but not just there, all across the country, there really is a strong protest against what's seen as Critical race theory—no one seems to know what it is exactly—but the idea that structural racism and white racism underlies all kinds of policies and programs has provoked opposition from whites and some blacks uh, all around the country. So, in a sense, the Republican Party is doing just what a political party ought to do, which is. When it sees an issue that is in its favor and seems to have caught the attention of the public, they push it very hard. It is an ideal issue for Republicans in that it is both education, which where parents really care about who they're with the schools that their kids go to, and it is an ideal in that it also touches clearly on race. The other thing that is attractive is that the places where a lot of the concern is being voiced are are the competitive battleground areas. Loudoun County has been shifting to the, to the left. Uh, this is the kind of area that Republicans want to regain their strength fairly well-to-do suburban voters, most of whom have college – many of whom have a college degree. Uh, so it, uh, I think – uh, it may – it's hard to criticize a political party for taking advantage of an issue that resonates. That's that's their – one of their uh, – the functions of a political party. Uh, it can be abused, but in this case uh, – and I think it is being abused, actually, but it's still it, – can criticize it, but it's that's just an inevitable part of the way the system works.
0: Yeah, Linda, um, I I agree with Tom that uh, that this isn't entirely ginned up outrage. There are really things happening out there uh, that are offending people, and it isn't. Uh, I, Tom didn't say this, but I'll say you know it isn't all um, uh, just racial hostility on the part of white people. I mean, some of these, I looked through the um, Loudoun County uh, uh, website, you know, the, the, the school board website and looked through their training materials And they have two different programs that they've started. They've got a systemic oppression and implicit bias program and an action plan to combat systemic racism. And they are appointing equity ambassadors, which are uh, students of color who will then report back on things that they have heard other students saying. Um, and um, it's, you know, I have to say that that doesn't seem so well advised, right? I mean, you can understand there'd be a backlash to that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, you, you think there's a
2: backlash to a kind of Maoist re-education uh, <laughs> program going on in our schools? Look, this is a complicated issue. And as someone who's been dealing with these race, uh, issues for a very long, a long time, most of my professional career, Uh, Critical race theory uh, as a topic is not new to me. It actually is an outgrowth of uh, uh, critical legal studies, uh, which was a program that was uh, basically started by Derrick Bell, a former professor of law at at Harvard.
0: And Um, Barack Obama's mentor. And his (laughs) mentor,
2: that's right. Um, (laughs) And and on the one hand, uh, the battle over critical race theory is very similar to some of the battles we saw in the early and mid-90s, over Afrocentric education and multicultural education, Um, multicultural education in particular, uh, which was, um, you know, there were a lot of controversies about it in California, and uh, the writing of textbooks. Uh, The difference is uh, critical race theory is not just about a reinterpretation of history, although I think one of the most... um, prominent sort of artifacts of CRT has been the 1619 project that the New York Times initiated a couple of years ago in in, uh, 2019, um, which tried to reframe the founding of the country from 1776 to uh, the year in which ostensibly African slaves first landed on American shores uh, it turns out that the history that was provided there was not even accurate. Uh, even the year 1619 is not accurate. The first slaves appeared uh, on uh, the shores of what is now the United States um, in the 1500s and uh, came here uh, with Spanish colonists. So, um, but that's not, that's not the main problem, uh, I, th- I think, with critical race theory, although it is, I think, the focus of a lot of what you're seeing in places like Loudoun County. The secondary part is this, uh, and I think the more profound and radical part um, of CRT, is a kind of reordering of what constitutes a just society. And it isn't uh, under the American concept, under our Constitution, individuals um, have certain rights, and one of the primary rights is to have equal treatment before the law. Well, critical race theory basically turns that on its head and uh, rights no longer adhere uh, to individuals, but rather to groups. And the judgment of when, in fact, there has been equality is not in providing equal treatment before the law or even equal opportunity and access, but rather trying to enforce uh, equal outcomes. And again, not for individuals, but for groups. Once you go down that path, you really are upending much of what um, you know. The entitled uh, the Enlightenment era um, gave us in terms of our concepts of individual liberty, and it really is a radical change. And you know, it's I, I'm not just being sort of snarky by talking about Maoist re-education. Uh, a lot of this does sort of harken back to. Marxist conceptions this is kind of a racialization of certain Marxist conceptions um, of society in which you have the oppressed and and oppressors and I think you know the sad thing about how this is played off in terms of Republicans is that I think Republicans are actually making uh, critical race theory seem less dangerous than it actually is and they're going overboard in trying to uh, outlaw uh, the teaching of critical race theory or the incorporation of those theories into uh, the curriculum um, actually is um, is undermining uh, the kind of serious critiques of critical race theory. So that's you know that's one of my problems and I think I talked about this last week on the, uh, uh, on the podcast that the state legislatures that are outlawing these programs may be, uh, doing uh, a real disservice to a debate which ought to be taking place and ought to focus on these uh, much more fundamental questions of uh, what you know what rights are, whether rights belong to groups or individuals, and how we judge uh, whether um, we have in fact uh, achieved um, equality.
0: Yeah, Damon. Um... Uh, so Ron DeSantis is one of those, uh, the, the governor of Florida, um, who uh, signed a bill outlawing the teaching of, uh, of critical race theory um, and uh, now has mandated that uh, a survey of students' beliefs um, uh, at the university level at, at public colleges in Florida – Um, He says he's concerned about the free flow of ideas, but it doesn't sound as if um, the state inquiring into what people think um, is really the way to ensure the free flow of ideas. What do you have to say?
3: No, I mean, as with so many other things, I I end up, uh, you know, it's why I belong on this podcast. I end up divided because I, I am very critical of what is called critical race theory and the assumptions that it makes about uh, american history and the american present uh the kind of all pervasiveness of racism in the uh in the political and economic structures of the country i think is overstated and even if even aside from that Even if it's a theory that that is the case, it should not be taught in schools, whether we're talking K through 12 or universities. It should not be taught as the simple truth. It should be taught as a theory and then alongside other accounts that are, are, I think— Uh, more adequate presentation of the complicated reality of things but by the same token the republican response to this is a kind of caricature of kind of thuggish authoritarianism like oh we're going to sweep in here and instead of allowing say a community where this is happening allowing the local parents who are outraged about what the school is teaching, let them protest and actually go to the school board meetings and vote out the members of the school board who approve approve the new curriculum. Instead of doing that, the state then comes in and tries to come up with a one-size-fits-all law uh, that outlaws the schools doing anything like that. They inevitably end up being overly broad and trying to uh, stamp out certain ideas that really the state, and it doesn't matter whether it's federal or at the state level, governments can't really micromanage this kind of of, uh, pedagogical and intellectual thinking in this way. I mean, laws are inevitably uh, a one-size-fit-all, and and these are really complicated issues. So, you know, as as Tom was saying, I don't really blame Republicans for— jumping on this issue because it's laying right there for them the, the left is walking into it and kicking up the dirt all on its own because it really does a lot of the left really does care about these issues but it's sparking a backlash and the republicans of course are going to try to take advantage of it for their own sake um but the way they're handling it is is uh you know very much in keeping with what you'd expect from the party whose lead leader is donald trump Um, It's at about that level. And of course, with Ron DeSantis hoping to be uh, the successor to the great Trump in uh, three years' time
0: right um, yeah the, the, there's no question that uh, the Republicans are handling this in the the crudest possible fashion um, passing laws that outlaw the teaching of certain things or or even um, having apparently certain ideas they're going to be cross-examined about what's inside their heads so um, so that's obviously uh, not ideal. But I want to tell you a story about a friend who, um, in the Midwest, in their school district, they had a very similar uh, situation to uh, what's going on in Loudoun County. And, you know, the parents did not object to more emphasis on the history of slavery or discrimination or anything along those lines, but they did object to things like separate meetings for black parents and white parents and other kinds of things that are just, you know, seen as being more divisive.
1: Well, they're right. Uh, they are more divisive and, and unwarranted. Uh, there, there are real issues here, but I despair of the public conversation actually reaching them. Uh, and, uh, I, I agree with Linda, uh, about the you know the the equity versus equality of opportunity point. But there's something even deeper going on. Uh, and that is the question, if slavery is our original sin, and if you take Christian theology seriously, there's no way of purging it. And that really gets to the heart of the question. Are American principles, the founding principles, available as constant counterweights to injustice and discrimination? Are they the basis on which we can save ourselves or are they part of the problem? And there, there are elements of critical race theory that suggest that they are part of the problem, not part of the solution. And that's where the attack on the enlightenment comes in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And, I don't think many Americans, uh, or certainly not a majority, are going to argue uh, that we have made no progress, that we can make no progress on racial issues, and that the principles that Martin Luther King invoked, you know, to, to counteract the, discrimi- the discrimination and racism of his own time. Uh, are not available to, to us today to take another leap forward towards the kind of society that I think most Americans want us to be. So that's that, I think, is what's most troubling, at least about the public representation of critical race theory, uh, that it is that it is a doctrine of unpurgeable original sin.
0: You know, um, this, of course, this argument is at the core of the American experience. It goes back more than decades, centuries. Uh, This was the nature of the falling out between Frederick Douglass and... um, uh, Oh, gosh, what was the famous uh, uh, abolitionist? um, Garrison. Yes, William Lloyd Garrison, because Garrison believed in the critical race theory idea. He believed that the whole thing was so tainted, uh, the whole American experiment, including the Constitution, so tainted that it couldn't couldn't be redeemed. And Douglass born in slavery, um, adamantly disagreed. And that was the basis of their falling out. They had been great allies and friends. So, you know, we, we constantly have this argument, but, um, but it, does, it does seem that things are, at the moment, um, more angry, dumb, and, uh, and, and uh, anti-intellectual than I've seen them in, in quite some time. All right, let's um, turn now to um, the uh, infrastructure deal, or maybe it's not a deal. It's not clear to me. Um, we had the president today meeting with this team of, um, of negotiators from the Hill saying we have a deal. Um, and then a few minutes later, apparently, we have Nancy Pelosi saying there ain't going to be a bipartisan bill unless there's a reconciliation bill. Um, Tom Edsel, do you have any insight into what's really happening?
4: No, I'm at the same stage as you. I'm trying to figure out exactly uh, how do they proceed? Do they enact the deal and then somehow put it on hold until they uh, enact uh, or try to enact the much more controversial pieces, uh, which may then sour Republicans on the the initial deal that they're now agreeing on. Uh, I don't understand either procedurally or politically how they can move forward successfully under the conditions. And I think it's not just uh, Pelosi. I think Schumer also said something to the same effect, uh, uh, where Republicans are going to start feeling that they're getting trapped into something that they're really not prepared to go with. And and, and I just don't understand what the theory is behind this in terms of getting to a final bill that actually creates an infrastructure program.
0: I really don't get it either. Linda, I mean, it just seems to me that as a political matter, I mean, by the way, you know, $1.2 trillion is a hell of a lot of money. But, um, but, But, you know, it seems to me that as a political matter, that there's more advantage for the Democrats in passing a bill than there is in the Republicans agreeing to one. So why are the Democrats playing hardball like this?
2: Well, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to try to figure out what's going on. I mean, I, so much of this um, is in the hands of one person and and it isn't Joe Manchin, it's Mitch McConnell. And if Mitch McConnell uh, decides that he's not you know, he does not want to see a deal. Uh, He does not want to see a bill passed uh, with Republican support. Uh, Math may not be, you know, my forte, but when I counted up the number of Republicans who showed up at the White House today, it was only five, and you need 10 uh, if you're going to get past uh, a filibuster, and they don't have that. So, This idea that um, just because you had a group of bipartisan senators, and they were the usual suspects on the Republican side, um, just because they agreed to it does not mean McConnell and the rest of the Republicans, enough Republicans will go along with it. Uh, And and at the end of the day, um, at some point, I think the Democrats have to decide what they're going to put forward and and probably get a vote on it. The the problem is that you know what they're calling infrastructure has a whole lot of stuff in it that has nothing to do with any kind of tradi- traditional uh, view of, of infrastructure. And if uh, if they do it on reconciliation and they push it through, and it requires a whole lot of spending, um, and also a whole lot of new taxes, um, all of that's going to be uh, fodder for next year's election. And uh, it remains to be seen who's going to ha- end up uh, better off uh, if that happens.
0: Right. Okay. Bill, I, I, I don't understand. Uh, why, why are the Democrats unwilling to, uh, to accept, you know, to take yes for an answer in this case?
1: Well, I have been perhaps closer to this story. Uh, than other people on this podcast. So let me just let me just create a, a factual record here. Uh, first of all, the, the, the 10 senators who went to the White House today were speaking on behalf of a group of 21 senators, 11 Republicans, 10 Democrats. Uh, and so my understanding is, that if the Democrats got unanimously behind this, uh, then there are enough Republicans who are already supporting it uh, to uh, uh, to overcome a filibuster. So that's point number one. Point number two, uh, there is, I believe, a procedural agreement. I'm not saying I like it, but these are the facts between Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer. The Senate is going to go first. Uh, and the bill, the infrastructure bill, the compromise bill, traditional infrastructure plus a few other things, uh, will be taken up on one track Uh The reconciliation bill, which contains everything else in the original Biden proposal, will be taken up on a separate track after the Senate enacts a budget resolution. The House will not take up uh, the infrastructure bill until the Senate passes both bills. So that's that's the way it works procedurally. Why is it working this way? Answer, uh, there are a bunch of Democrats who care at least as much about the human infrastructure piece of this. That's what they're calling it, uh, everything other than traditional infrastructure, and are afraid that if they don't link the two procedurally, they'll end up with a compromised infrastructure bill and nothing else. And they don't want to end up in that position, and that's generating a situation where there's going to be intense pressure on moderate Senate Democrats to agree in advance to back the reconciliation bill before anything else happens. So stay tuned. This okay. this makes an awful you know, this makes a kind of awful sense, and it may very well be a formula for ending up completely empty-handed.
0: Okay, but thank you for that. That does at least explain uh, what we're seeing. Um, Okay, Damon, uh, if you want to weigh in on infrastructure, feel free, but I'd like to also discuss uh, President Biden's proposal on crime. so first, do you, did you want to add anything on the infrastructure? Well,
3: just there... that uh, I wanted to push back a little bit since earlier you uh, did the dreaded thing of calling me an optimist. Uh, I just want to clarify <laughs> what I find optimistic uh, and cheering about what we're seeing here is the fact that this group of, as Bill said, 11 Republicans, 10 Democrats and the Senate actually got together forged a kind of deal, went to the president, he supports it. This is exactly what actually uh, Bill Galston himself, I recall saying, I believe, in December roundabout uh, in the transition period was the kind of model of how he hoped the Democrats would try to govern in this very difficult situation of having these incredibly narrow majorities. That was, of course, prospective, hoping the Democrats took the Senate. They did, but uh, you know that means we're on a knife's edge in both houses so the fact that we actually got that first step done finally on something i think is is a cheering indication of where we could be going but i totally agree with all of the rest of you uh, perhaps not Bill, who seems a little more positive about how it maybe would work out, but it, it, is, it is a very uh, delicate situation they have set up here with the procedure. I could totally imagine the Republicans uh, at some point, really at any point, deciding, wait a minute, because these two bills are so tightly linked, even though I'm only going to vote for the first one, it's as if I'm voting for the second one because the second one only passes if the first one passes. And actually, while we've been on the air recording this, Biden has come out and given comments in which he totally backed Pelosi's position and said, "I'm not vo- I'm not signing the first bill unless I have the other one here with it." So, yeah. so th- this this is a kind of conditional dimension to policy and bill. Construction and passage that I think is almost designed to uh, to get tripped up by really anybody objecting, and, yeah, and the and, Republicans and... have all kinds of incentives to do that.
0: I mean, it really is pulling. The... I mean, honestly, you know that I'm not inclined to be. Uh... To be uh, go easy on on the Republicans, but honestly, this feels like the Democrats were basically negotiating in bad faith. I mean, look, you know, they they came to this big deal, this 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 compromise, only to then say, pull the rug out and say, no, you know, we have to have the whole loaf, or we're we're not gonna we're not gonna do it. And that's just not that's not on the up and up in my humble yeah, opinion. Yeah, it's,
3: it's it's also uh, it's what it ends up with is that they couldn't pass the huge full infrastructure bill And so they broke it apart, and now the end result is supposed to be that they, in fact, do pass the entire infrastructure bill just in two parts. And so the the fact that the Republicans are going to be on the record supporting Part 1, and that is the conditional that allows the passage of Part 2, I think is going to end up being a breaker. Uh, But we'll see. I mean, it's been weird so far. Maybe there'll be some other twist that we're not anticipating. Uh, okay. As for well, the crime gonna... bill, yes, very good. I, I like the crime. <laughs> oh, right, the the like crime proposal. I, I, okay. I, I think he. I think Biden emphasized guns a little bit too much. I think mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. sort of a. Uh, a tangent from the main point and wouldn't do anything to address our current uh, pretty severe violent crime spike, but there are other considerations in the party there. But in general, uh, the the forthright facing of the problem, I think, is good and a model for how Democrats really politically are going to have to respond to uh, what we're seeing in cities around the country.
0: Yeah, um, Tom Edsel, uh, you know crime, well, homicides increased by 30% last year. Um, there have been studies showing that in, um, in cities that experience Black Lives Matter protests, uh, crime spiked more than in other places. We do not have this kind of spike in other countries. Um, so it does appear that it is a matter of police pulling back. Um, and not enforcing the law, along with, um, along with some other things. So this is a real vulnerability uh, for the Democratic Party. Don't you agree?
4: I do, and I'm not sure that what Biden did is all that effective, either politically or, or plain pragmatically. The, uh, uh, there's a, also been a huge surge in retirements and people leaving the police force. It's a good article today in The New York Times on that subject.
0: Yep, um, I have some but, quotes from that right here.
4: <laughs> yeah, uh I I think that focusing on guns will be seen by some people as a way out of focusing on the perpetrators of these crimes. Uh, rightly or wrong like it's clearly guns are a problem, but uh, right now, there's a problem of people going out and killing people at a much higher rate than it wasn't the case in the past. And there's a real problem of police reluctance to enforce the law because they're scared of getting caught in a semi-George Floyd situation. And they they feel that the public has turned against them. I think the problems that Minneapolis, Seattle, and uh, Portland, Oregon have experienced— are real sores on the Democratic Party that that are festering. And uh, Biden, I think, needs to, should have done something that showed kind of a show of force that Democrats are going to be tough too. And it's an issue that Republicans own. And if it's allowed to get full force, it's, it's going to be a real problem. If critical race theory is a problem for Democrats, crime would be a much worse one.
0: Yeah, Linda, um, the article that Tom is referencing mentions that, um, that uh, a survey of 200 police departments indicated the retirements are up 45 percent and resignations rose by 18 percent. Between April of 2020 and April of 2021, um, compared to previous years, uh, in New York City, 2,600 officers retired in 2020 compared with 1,500 the previous year. So it is really notable um, how demoralized and uh, you know dis- dissatisfied the police are. And you know Biden did say this is not the time to turn our backs on law enforcement or our communities, and he did. Earmark or suggest earmarking more money for law enforcement. Um, but um, would, do you agree with Tom that it's not enough? Oh, it's not nearly
2: enough. I mean, he did uh, say that they could repurpose $350 billion uh, in the uh, COVID relief bills that hadn't been used and, and put that to policing. But if um, Joe Biden wants to get reelected president, he's got to become the law and order. Um, president and the law and order candidate. And I mean, there are some uncomfortable truths here that nobody really wants to talk about. I mean, we've had a lot of focus in recent years on mass incarceration in the United States, and there has been a big trend uh, now to move away from the kind of, you know, three strikes and you're out bills. And, um, and we've you know been in the process of emptying our prisons. Well, you know, <laughs> That does, in fact, put people who have committed crimes and sometimes very serious crimes, not just minor crimes. Uh, They may have been incarcerated for more minor crimes, but have been um, actually uh, perpetuating uh, bigger crimes for which they may not have um, even been convicted. And that puts more criminals on the street. And, you know, it's not just white Americans who are concerned about this. I mean, look at the mayoral race uh in new york city it really sort of ended up boiling down to um it looks like a referendum uh on the candidate who was more um you know in favor of um reforms in policing but still uh policing uh and policing uh former cop himself for former cop himself former uh police captain um eric uh adams and he um you know, he appears at least <laughs> at the first count. He is in the lead right now, what will happen after uh, rank uh, order uh, voting. We don't totally know, but he—he he, it looks like he does have um, enough of a lead that he probably will uh, end up being the, the uh, person elected. But this is a huge issue, and it is most acutely felt in the very communities that, um, communities of color where a lot of this crime occurs it you know yes there you know there's crime in the suburbs as well we get carjackings we get other kinds of things but the real day-to-day crime was reflected I think most dramatically in this last week um, by that scene of a uh, armed gunman uh, shooting at a man with two children um, right nearby, it is a, it is an absolute uh, miracle that neither of those children uh, were uh, injured. I mean, the, the, the uh, assailant, you know, filed multiple shots, at very close range with uh, these two kids sort of huddling and the older child protecting her younger brother. Um, This is, you know, this is a real serious problem and something's got to be done about it. I don't think uh, President Biden did nearly enough this week with his speech and focusing on gun dealers. Yeah, you know, bad faith um, gun dealers who are selling guns to people who shouldn't have them is a problem. Um, But the biggest problem is those people who get the guns in their hands and ensuring that there is proper policing and that those people are taken off the streets.
0: Um, Linda, I agree with most of what you said. I'm going to beg to differ on one aspect, though. You said we were in the process of emptying out our prisons. I don't really think we've been doing that. There have been some releases during covid um for that reason um and the number of people incarcerated has been going down because the crime rate has been going down but i don't think there's been any massive effort to empty out the prisons but there is a call for that oh the calls for that yes yes yes, yes. for that and that that i think is
2: not not great not good for
0: for the democrats Hmm. um okay well um bill uh so I'm assuming that you think the, um, at least the attention that, that Biden is paying to the issue is is welcome. Uh, do you agree with everyone else, though, that it's inadequate, or do you think it's okay?
1: It's a start, but only a start. Uh, there is pretty compelling evidence that the defund the police slogan may have cost House Democrats about 10 seats in 2020, uh, and it could contribute to an even greater route in 2022 unless the Democrats handle this issue firmly and clearly. Uh, the president, I think, is setting the stage for that conversation. But given where the you know the Democratic Party is right now, especially in Congress, he can't stop at setting the stage for that conversation. He's going to have to lead it. It's going to have to be sustained and it's going to have to go much farther. Uh, as one of the veterans of the 1988 to 1992 period, the you know, the the period that led up to the passage of the nineteen ninety four crime bill, uh, you know, with which then Senator Joe Biden had so much to do and for which he and the Clinton administration have been pilloried subsequently. Uh I think uh I, I think we're gonna have we're going to be forced to revisit some of that history. And
0: yeah, looks like it. Um uh, this is a true story there was a judge um who was known this was back in the 70s he was so um so soft-hearted regarding criminals that he got the nickname turn loose bruce <laughs> and um and one time he was actually mugged and um, he took the bench the next day bruised and bloodied and And uh, there were some snickers, and and he said, I want everyone – he very sternly said, I want everybody to understand this doesn't change my views at all. I have very strong opinions about justice in this society and injustice and racial justice. And somebody from the back of the courtroom shouted, mug him again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess guess Irving Kristol was wrong.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Irving Kristol who famously said a, a conservative <laughs> is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. Um all right. Um let us now turn to our highlights or lowlights of the week. Damon Linker.
3: Well, um my choice this week is an article in Politico uh titled How Republicans Became the Quote, barstool party. Um, this is the latest in, in lots of articles that have been written somewhat along these lines, but I think this one touches on something a little bit closer, maybe to the heart of things. Uh, it's, it's largely about a guy uh, named Dave Portnoy, who is the Uh, founder of the Barstool Sports Digital Media Empire. And let me be clear, I really don't know what this is. I don't engage (laughs) with it whatsoever. This is not an article about me. But it is about what it really means to think about uh, the Republican Party becoming the party of the working class people who are not college educated and how that dynamic is going to move forward apart from the singular person of donald trump because the fact is donald trump is in his mid-70s and uh whether he has any political future he's not going to be around forever but here's a guy dave portnoy has 2.6 million followers on twitter he's extremely popular online, and um, this is an article that in a way takes off from a, a very good column uh, written by my former colleague at the week named Matthew Walther from February, which talked about the same thing, the rise of barstool conservatives. It's, again, a kind of lowbrow version of what conservatism could be with The culture war at the center, but not the culture war of the Reagan Bush years, uh, meaning the second Bush, so from Reagan through George W.'s administration, which was focused uh, more on traditional Christianity, uh, evangelical voters, and conservative Catholics. This is more a culture war of uh, cultural and class resentment directed up at the elites. So if you're interested in thinking a little bit more deeply, about what that is, how it's emerging, and what it might portend. This is uh, definitely a good piece, again titled How Republicans Became the Barstool Party in Politico. The author is Derek Robertson.
0: Okay,
2: Linda. Well, I'm not going to point to an article, but rather um, an announcement, which I think is good news and that is that the Biden administration is announcing that they are going to try to evacuate uh, those Afghans who worked as translators and interpreters uh, who have applied for special immigrant visas. Um, We don't yet know the details. We don't know how many uh, will be evacuated, nor do we know what third country they'll be taken to. Uh, But at least it is some movement forward, and this is very critical because, of course, With the withdrawal of uh, U.S. forces, uh, the Taliban is very likely to try to um, basically uh, persecute anyone who did anything for the United States. So this is at least one step forward, and we hope that there will be more to come, because if not, I think we're going to have a a real refugee crisis uh, on our hands uh, going forward with people who uh, stood by us uh, and whom— uh,
0: we, we did not stand by. Absolutely. Okay, Tom Edsel.
4: I uh, I hadn't prepared for this, but um, can we pick bad things? Sure, anything at all. And you don't even have to do it if you don't want. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think uh, d- Florida Governor DeSantis's, uh actions on critical race theory show how this whole issue can get abused in, in more dangerous ways than the critical race theory poses he's actually canceling and prohibiting a form of intellectual inquiry and when republicans do that they are really stepping on their own toes in the long run it may sell well and it may well contribute to his nomination in 2024 but it is a a, it's fascistic, if nothing else. And uh, I find it really uh, awful to see this.
1: Right. Bill Galston. Well, my contribution is another blow to representative government. Uh, Last week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill into law allowing Texans to carry unlicensed handguns. Today, uh, the Quinnipiac poll released a new survey of Texas voters uh, who say by a margin of 74 to 24 percent that they oppose allowing anyone 21 years of age or older to carry hung- handguns without a license. So the Texas legislature has just overwhelmingly passed and the governor of Texas has joyously signed a bill that contradicts the views of three quarters of the registered voters in the state of Texas. Uh, and so it goes.
0: <laughs> well done. All right. <laughs> um, I would like to um, praise a piece that appeared in Persuasion. It was by Zaid Jalani, and uh, it it's about the New York Times. Um, th- it's come up on this podcast in the past that uh, – we, some of us, thought that uh, the firing of Don McNeil, uh, who did their excellent coverage of health issues and specifically of the COVID pandemic, um, was really um, uh, unsupportable. Um, but um, and it was it was on the basis of a, a false allegation. Of racism, well, turns out that um, when the New York Times was up for a Pulitzer Prize for its reporting on COVID, and uh, when when uh, McNeil's reporting in particular was singled out as being uh, important to that coverage, apparently um, the paper wrote to the Pulitzer Committee during the deliberative process to stress that McNeil was not a racist, that an internal Times investigation had found him innocent of this charge. Um, and so when they, when their prize was on the line, they, they told the truth about McNeil, uh, and yet they still fired him, which is, uh, the height of, of hypocrisy. So glad persuasion drew attention to that little caper. Um, As always, we welcome your feedback. Thank you to the listener who reminded me that we need to Uh, list the articles that we recommend in our show notes we will try to be better about doing that Um, thanks to all of you who write with feedback suggestions ideas criticisms we welcome all of it i don't get to respond to every email but i try to read everyone i think i do read everyone Um, and so you can reach me at monacharin at thebulwark.com and we will return next week as every week